I imagine that there aren't very many of you who are familiar, immediately familiar with the name Ray Parker Jr. In fact, the only reason that I know who he is is because I'm a child of the 80s and my babysitter and best friend was a 27-inch Sony Trinitron television. You may recognize him as the lead singer of the funk band Radio or as the backing guitarist for Barry White. However, in all likelihood, many of you do not know him as a serious musician, but as a one-hit wonder. And for those of you who still don't recognize the name Ray Parker Jr., he's the artist that gave the world the Ghostbusters theme song. When there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? Amen. Ghostbusters. Parker was approached by the movie producers to write a theme song but couldn't come up with any good ideas until one night he was up late watching TV and saw a commercial for pest control or something like that. And he got the idea for the theme song that is now stuck in my head. I mean, imagine it's, you know, one of these got pest problems, bugs, mice, raccoons, in-laws, grown children still living at home. Excuse me. Who are you going to call? Joe Bob's Critter Control. We kill them dead. Right? You've all seen these commercials. They're usually very poorly done. And it has a guy standing in front of the van with his phone number on it. So, Ray Parker Jr. took this idea and ran with it. And now the question, who are you going to call, is almost always answered, Ghostbusters. Psalm 102 believe it or not, is a lot like the Ghostbusters theme song. While it's certainly not uh, catchy um, and doesn't have that commercial jingle quality, Psalm 102 both asks and answers the question. When you've got life problems, who are you going to call? Now, the answer's obvious. We're in church. So, of course, the answer's going to be God. But think about it, when life stinks, when the whole world seems out to get me, when I wish that maybe everything would have been better off if I just hadn't woken up this morning, or maybe if I hadn't even been born, where am I supposed to turn for help? Who's the expert with the catchy jingle that can fix my problems, or at least help me put them in perspective? Who are you going to call? God. The God of creation, salvation, and preservation. While not as catchy as the Ghostbusters theme song, I think it has a little something to it. But I also want to talk about those other things that we turn to. Those other gods. Those other solutions. Because more often than not, we run away from God in the times of trouble when we should actually run to Him. This psalm maps out for us pretty clearly three things for us to know about life and God. First, sometimes life stinks. There's no denying it. The lives we live are not the way they're supposed to be. Second, God knows. He's not ignorant of our struggles. He's not some absent father, some deadbeat God. 
And third, God's got this. He knows what he's doing. Just trust him. Now, I could just stop there. But I want to dig into this text a little bit more. I want to tease this out. So um, we'll go back and I'm going to reread through portions of it. It wasn't printed in your bulletin, I guess, uh, for those of you that got bulletins. Um, But there's another part to this, the title of the psalm that I think is really important for us to understand. So bear with me as I go through that since it wasn't uh, read before. But here we go. Verses 1 through 11, including the title. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call, for my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl in the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm lone, like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like a long or like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. If nothing else is clear from these verses, it's pretty obvious that the writer does not lead a charmed life. Even from the preface, we see that this whole song is a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. The Hebrew of this easily overlooked title is actually worth looking at. Afflicted is not a word we use in our everyday conversations. We don't often say to our friends, you know, I've been struggling with a lot of affliction lately. But the word translated in English as afflicted actually has a much broader range of meaning. Affliction is the catch-all term for being Troubled, puzzled, confused, sick, suffering, hurt, lonely, abandoned, insecure, self-loathing, poor, needy, humiliated, and depressed. If none of these apply to you, then you're either a rare breed or you're lying to yourself. So this is a prayer of one who has been beaten down by the world, as we all have. When he's faint, literally when he is covered over by darkness. And in this state, he complains. He doesn't speak reasonably. doesn't have a, just a man-to-man with God, a tete-a-tete. He complains to God. The one thing in existence that sh- should be able to prevent this whole situation. and should have done something, whatever the situation may be. But the most important thing in here is that he pours out his complaint. Before the Lord. He doesn't just say, things are alright. But you know, there is that whole affliction thing. You could get on that, that would be great. He doesn't give God his complaint with an eyedropper. 
But he pours the whole thing out. He makes a mess and says, God, you clean it up. Now, while this seems a strange way to begin a prayer to the God of the universe, Psalm 102 is, and its writer are not alone with this particular tactic. Moses cries out to God. David cries out to God. Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah complain to the Lord. Jesus even pours out his sorrow to God the Father. This is telling for us and how our prayers should look. God doesn't want our good food, good meat, good God, let's eat kind of prayers. But as Charles, whom I affectionately call the Reverend Pastor Chuckles, just for the record, you can call him that too. But as he reminded us whenever he preached on Psalm 88, we are free to keep it real with God. Psalm 102 with Psalm 88. It's about as real as it gets. The psalmist is crying out to God not to hide from him, not to ignore his anguish. With heartbreaking and very honest language, this psalm tells of how bad life can get. My days are like smoke. My bones burn. My heart is withered. I'm too consumed with anxiety and fear that I forget to eat. I'm all alone. Now verse 8 gives us a glimpse as to why life is so bad for the writer. My Bible says, all the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. Paul, man. Paul and Paul. Take a minute for that to sink in. What this probably means, though, is not that they just throw his name out in place of a cuss word. But it means that when his enemies prayed, they thanked God that they were not like this guy. And asked that God would never make them like him. His enemies considered him the textbook definition of someone that God hated. But the Hebrew of this psalm is really even more painful. All the day my enemies hate me. Those who praise me, have sworn against me. Not only do my enemies hate me, because that's what they're supposed to do, but my friends, those who used to praise me and encourage me, even they have turned against me. And this makes a little bit more sense of verses 6 and 7 with all that lonely bird imagery. Everyone has abandoned me. Even God seems to have abandoned me. Verse 11 says, My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. You know, I'll be honest. I struggled with this for a while to figure out what it meant. You know, the frustrating thing about poetry is that sometimes you have no idea what the poet's going on and on about. So I was with him through the bones are burning and the eating ashes stuff. But what does this days like an evening shadow mean? Evening shadows are long. Are his days long? Maybe they feel longer because of his suffering? That doesn't make any sense. Evening shadows are thin? 
like the skinny mirror at the Hall of Mirrors? No, that doesn't make any sense, though. And then it finally clicked with me. Evening shadows are about to become nothing. Their moments are numbered. They're about to disappear with the setting of the sun. My days are like evening shadows because they, too, are about to end. I'm running out of steam, running out of energy. It's pointless in going on. It'll all be over soon enough, and my grave will read, God failed. Don't worry, I'm going to get to the hope. Verse 9 starts, For I eat ashes like bread and mingle mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. Many of you have met our doorbell, my dog, Pepper. She's a rescue dog. But she's not your typical rescue dog that we save from a puppy mill or bad owners. You see, Pepper was rescued from Bubby. Bubby is the other dog that Pepper used to live with. Bubby thought Pepper was a chew toy. Bubby would bite Pepper, chase Pepper, and throw her in the air just for the sheer joy of watching Pepper fall to the ground. Which is why Pepper is now a basket case. Bubby thought Pepper was a ball. And Pepper thought Bubby was a bully. Verse 10 puts us in the position of Pepper. At times, we may feel like God is a bully. He throws us around just to watch us fall. He doesn't seem to care if we get hurt or how fragile we already are. For God, the bully, it's all just fun and games. That somehow, it's all God's fault. Have you ever felt this way? Maybe you haven't used this language. But certainly you can relate. You're stressed out, stretched thin, burning the candle at both ends, running on fumes, a loner, a loser, a liar, a lunatic. You feel like you're spinning in circles, getting caught in the webs that you weave. You never have enough time or enough energy or enough money or enough friends. Your heart aches or quakes or is about to explode. Your enemies hate you. Your friends have abandoned you. Your parents and children have failed you, or you have failed them. You feel like no matter what you do, you will always be a failure, that you'll never be good enough, rich enough, smart enough, pretty enough, funny enough, anything enough to make yourself or anyone else truly happy. That God, if He exists, doesn't have time for you, or worse, He hates you, Have you ever felt like this? And if so, where did you turn? Did you run into the arms of a loving God? Or did you run away from Him into the arms of someone or something else? Alcohol, drugs, video games, sex, Facebook, self-mutilation, work, sleep, pornography, unhealthy relationships, control, power, Self-righteousness? These are all false gods. They aren't the experts with the van and the commercial. They can't fix your problems. When life stinks, who do you call? 
Now let's look at verses 12 through 22. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in His glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that the people yet to be created may praise the Lord that He looked down from His holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who are doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem His praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. God knows. God knows that life stinks. God knows that we feel abandoned. God is not some bully and He is certainly no dummy. One of the beautiful truths of the Gospel is that God's not impressed by anything we do. Sounds backwards. Where's the beauty in that? Well, it's in the very fact that God doesn't save us from our sins because we've impressed Him. And therefore we have to keep impressing Him until it becomes too much to bear. An endless cycle of doing tricks for an increasingly jaded God. Even dancing bears and magic tricks lose their charm after a little while. God is not impressed by our gifts and talents, our brains, our beauty, our wit, our wisdom, our American dollars, or our common sense. He gave us all these things. He's not impressed because He taught us how to use them. We should be impressed by Him. He saved us because of His grace, because He loves us in spite of ourselves. That's the message of the Gospel. But connected to this is something that you may have never thought of. God's not surprised by our sins. He's not caught off guard. He's not unaware. He knows. Not only does He know all that we've suffered through, how terrible life can be, He also knows all the other things that we've tried to fix our pain with before we turn to Him. All of them Sorry, all those man-made, Satan-made remedies that claim to fix all our problems. Or at least make them go away. All the ways we've tried to sweep life under the rug. All the dark places where we like to hide. God is not shocked that we have tried to cure our pain with things like sex and drugs and the lies that we're good people. God's not like our friends who don't know the secret ways that we've tried to kill ourselves and and make ourselves feel alive. God knows. Verses 19 and 20 say, He has looked down from His holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who are otherwise doomed to die. God knows. Therefore, there's no sense in hiding it. Verse 18, but verse 18 gives the context. Let this be recorded for a generation to come. 
so that our people yet to be created may praise the Lord that He looks down. He has looked down from His holy height. A people yet to be created. This is not the end. Clearly there have been many generations since this nearly 3,000 year old psalm was written. We should assume the same. My death is not the end of God. I may lose everything, die in a gutter, and have an Eleanor Rigby funeral where nobody came. But that doesn't mean that God's work is finished. My suffering is to be written down for others to hear. My faith, if there is any, is to be passed on to others. The simple truth that God knows everything, my problems and my sin, is to be given to the next generation. And there's actually freedom in this. We should be ashamed of our sins, but not so ashamed that we never seek forgiveness. When I was in high school, I was trying so hard to be cool. It just doesn't come naturally. I started smoking pot because I wanted to fit in. Growing up in a small town didn't let things stay secret for too long. And my dad found out about it. He came to me and he said he knew what I'd been doing. And now I had one of two options, right? I could deny it. Or I could fess up. What I didn't realize at first was the freedom in his knowing already. He knew. There was no point in lying. Sure, I got in trouble. Sure, my dad was disappointed. Sure, things changed in our relationship. But there was also a freedom in his knowing. Now we could talk about it. I didn't need to hide anything. Obviously, I needed to stop. That was, but it's neither here nor there. The lines of communication were open in ways that they had never been before. And the same is true with God. God knows our struggles and fears. He knows our pains and worries and He knows our sin. There's no use in hiding like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. God knows where we hide. And there's freedom in that because we can be totally and freely honest with Him. But there's more to it than this. God's not just some overweight security guard watching us on surveillance monitors. He's not this voyeuristic big brother who watches us only to keep us in check. No, He's looked down from His holy height from heaven. He's looked down on the earth in order to do something. He hears our groaning. He's going to set us free from it. Someday. Verse 17 gives us further hope in this. Because God knows our sin, surely He should curse us. Surely He could ignore us and give us the silent treatment. But instead of lecturing us or giving us the cold shoulder, the Bible says that He listens to us. Verse 17 says He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. 
Literally, he turns his face towards the prayer of the naked and needy and does not hate their prayer. This is set in resolution to the very first verses of the psalm. The psalmist cries out to God, hear my prayer. O Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily when I call. This is clearly an important issue for the writer of Psalm 102. But in the midst of all his affliction, he remembers this truth. And is so convinced of it that he wants others to know it. So in our suffering... We remember this. Life stinks. God knows. And He does not hate us because of our sin. In fact, He loves us so much that He sent His only Son, Jesus, to die for us, to demolish the wall of sin that we have built. The reason God has to look down from His holy height is not because He has separated Himself from us, but because we have pushed Him away. But in this prayer, we see that though He seems far away, He really isn't. He hears our prayers and does not hate them. Life stinks. God knows. And God's got this. I'm sure you can all think of a time when people have been helpful. Overly helpful. Just a little little too helpful. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's your spouse. You're minding your own business, doing your thing, and somebody, somebody comes along and tells you what to do. It tells you you're doing it all wrong. It tells you that they've had success doing it another way. Therefore, you should stop what you're doing and do it their way. Now, the American dream tells, tells me that I should tell those people to get lost, pull myself up by my bootstraps, and out of stubbornness, do it like Sinatra, my way. gospel tells it a little differently. We need community. No man is an island. Some people are just better at things than we are. Some people legitimately know more than I do. So we need to embrace humility and wisdom in these situations. Thanks, Vaughn, by the way, for fixing the toilet that I broke. Trying to fix the toilet. Very helpful to have a toilet in the house. Um, And it was also a wonderful lesson for me on my own idiocy. But here's an ultimate truth that no experience can debunk. God knows what He's doing. He doesn't need our insight, our neighborly help, our just a suggestion. Or have you considered... God's got this. So when it comes to God's overall plan for life, the universe, and everything, we need to stop acting like the neighbor peering over the fence and start treating God like the unimpressed professional who has to deal with self-aggrandizing customers all day that despite all their knowledge couldn't fix it in the end. God is the late night emergency call because we are incompetent and incapable to fix our own problems. This is not the good news we want to hear. But there's a whole cross-section of the advertising industry that markets 
to this specific truth. Are you an idiot? Do you think you could fix the problem by yourself? Well, guess what? All of our clients are idiots. That's why we're still in business. Pay us money for something you said you could do for free. Because we're the experts, and you're the checkbook. As frustrating as this sounds, that's the truth of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that we don't have to tell God what to do. We don't have to tell him how to change the world and save sinners. God's got this. He knows what he's doing, and he hasn't messed up yet. Let's quickly look at... uh, Verses 25 through 28. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like, gar- like a garment. You will come, you will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servant shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. God made the heavens and the earth. He created stars and galaxies and all of space. He also created cells and microbes and things that our eyes can never see. And yet, all these things will pass away. They are not eternal. Only God is eternal. Creation will become threadbare, like a worn-out rag, like an overwashed pair of boxers that shows way more than anyone wants to see. And God will remain unchanged. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there has never been and never will be even a second that he does not exist. God's got a plan and is seeing it through to completion. And nothing can stop him. Nothing can stop God from loving you and saving you and forgiving you and giving you life everlasting. Nothing. God's got this. The book of Job has this amazing scene as a climax where God comes and speaks to Job. Job has lost everything. His life is in the pits. His friends come and start telling him, maybe it's his fault. God hates you. Finally, Job snaps. Doesn't tell his friends to shut up, but blames God. He accuses God of being a bully. Job tells God he doesn't deserve any of this, and God doesn't know what he's doing. Then God comes and puts Job in his place. Out of a whirlwind, God asked Job, where were you when I created everything? I imagine it was kind like that, that he wasn't yelling it. Where were you when I created everything? Where were you when I set about my great plan? Oh, right, you didn't exist yet. Don't tell me what to do. I know what I'm doing. I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it, that whole thing. God's got this. When our life stinks, we are free to run to God and tell Him. But we also need to know that God's got everything under control. And we need to stop being backseat drivers and enjoy the view. He's taken every single detail of all of creation into account, and He's not going to let any of it slip through His hands. Even when life stinks, God's still good. The beauty of this psalm is that it only refers to God by one name. For the very few Hebrew buffs out there, 
you know that God has many names in Scripture. Sometimes He's Elohim, the name used for miraculous works. Sometimes He's Adonai, the reverent name of God in place of saying His real name, like calling Howard Brown Pastor Howard instead of the more familiar Howard the Duck. I'm a nicknamer, by the way. So, if you have a nickname, it means you're probably on my good side. However, more often than not, God is referred to as Yahweh. Written out in English as Lord, in those sort of weird lowercase capital letters. Yahweh is the covenant name of God, which means that it's His most personal name. Only folks that know Him call Him Yahweh. Telemarketers call me Mr. Major. Uh, My students call me Mr. Major. My wife calls me a variety of things, but generally it's just Paul. Sometimes she uses it as a cuss word. My friends call me Paul. I imagine sometimes they use it as a cuss word as well. But Paul is my relationship name. You have to have some kind of relationship with me to call me Paul. To speak to me on a first name basis. Yahweh is the same. It is a relationship name. It means simply, I am. But in a relationship, it means I am, I was, I always will be. I've chosen a people for myself in order to set them apart, to save them from sin and suffering. Yahweh for short. The psalmist cries out to this name, the God who was and is and forever shall be, who has a relationship with his people. He is not some absent and foreign God, but one who knows his people and knows their suffering. I teach at a Christian school here in town, and every Friday we have a chapel service for the whole school. And one Friday, a kindergartner named Jeff prayed in front of the whole school. It's amazing hearing a five-year-old pray, by the way, because they're not really trying to impress anybody. They're not really trying to use the lingo, sort of pray for anything. He's just saying what's on his heart. And Jeff's prayer was incredibly cute because he didn't really know what he was saying. But in this five-year-old's prayer, I relearned the gospel. Just as a side note, context for this, uh, red marks are what we give when kids get in trouble. And Alba and Quinterio are two of his classmates that make their way into the prayer. Jeff prayed, Dear God, thank you for everyone who is dying. Thank you for everyone with red marks. Thank you for everyone who is sick. And um, um, thank you for Albin Quinterio. Amen. Jeff didn't know what he was saying. But in spite of that, his prayer broke my heart. If God is truly in control, then we need to thank Him for all those things that we would normally complain to Him about. Thank you for everyone who is dying. Because God knows what He's doing. 
Thank you for everyone who is in trouble, because God is in control. Thank you for everyone who is sick, because God's got this. Thank you, God, that work is hard, and marriage is hard, and family is hard, and life is hard. Thank you, God, because you've got this. Where I come from, there's an old saying, God brought you to it, God will bring you through it. You may have heard this. As, and as trite and condescending as this type of self-help, bumper sticker, let go and let God motto can be, it actually does point to a biblical truth. God brought the Israelites to the Red Sea and He literally brought them through it. He brought a later generation into exile and He brought them through it. He brought Jesus to death and He brought Him through it. Whatever your particular struggle, hear these words not as a trite, suck it up, throwaway phrase, but as a promise. God brought you to it. He's going to bring you through it. God's got this. Verse 28 tells us that the children of of your servants will dwell secure. Their offspring will be established before you. Even if I die, even when I die, God's plan is not finished. God's plan is bigger than one person or one lifetime. God's name will still be praised long after we are dead, unless Jesus hurries to bring his heavenly kingdom to earth. God knows what he's doing. God's got a plan. And part of that plan is teaching us to find our joy and comfort, not in the things of this life, but in him. Part of his plan is that when life stinks, we learn that God is good. But even better, part of his plan was that He sent His own Son, Jesus, to take on our sin, to die in our place, to live a life that stunk by entering into a fallen, sinful, and broken world. Part of His plan was to let Jesus suffer and die and then raise Him back to life. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, God defeated the power that sin and death have over us. He's promised that life as we know it is going to change. One day, all that is sad will come untrue. One day, life won't stink. All that's left for us to do is trust Him. To believe in Him. To know that no other sense of comfort or pain relief can actually accomplish anything other than momentary forgetfulness. To know that no matter how bad things are, God's got this. Who are you going to call? 